the next stop, Sprawlcast. You're listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Clausus, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl. Sprawlcast is a show made in collaboration with CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. And we are broadcasting slash podcasting from Treaty 7 territory. This is the home of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Pekani, Siksika, and Ghana nations, along with the Sutina Nation and Stony Nakoda nations. This place is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. It's one of my favorite places to visit. Commercial Drive in Vancouver. Every summer, my family makes a trip to Vancouver to see my wife's family. And every time, going to Commercial Drive is one of my highlights. What strikes me there is the mix of people. On the drive, you have people from all walks of life, all rubbing shoulders with one another. It feels like everyone has a place. It's colorful and vibrant and just wonderfully human. I like just being there and taking it all in. Now, I'm probably romanticizing it a bit. It's easy to do that with other cities, viewing them as the ideal and viewing our own local community as uniquely deficient. In a way, our own city and neighborhood can be the hardest to see, the hardest place to truly be present. It's so easy to seek escape elsewhere. The reality is that Vancouver has the same disparities that we have in Calgary and has some problems that are even worse, like the unaffordability of housing. Even so, it can be useful to look elsewhere for fresh insights into our own city. Sometimes another place can illuminate what we struggle to see here at home, or maybe it sparks our imaginations in new ways. It can shift our perspective just a bit. And I get that sense when I'm on commercial drive. I catch a glimpse of the richness that comes with a truly diverse neighborhood. I feel a sense of wonder, even if it's just for an afternoon. And I think there's something to that. Now, to help us dig into this a little more, I asked my nine-year-old nephew to do a little assignment for the sprawl this week. He lives just a few blocks off commercial drive. My name is Eli, and I, I'm going to tell you what I like about the drive. The things I like about the drive is because there's always people at the drive, and it gives me, like, a warm feeling, kind of. Well, I don't know. And then also because the fact that there's a lot of stores at it. Well, I don't And sometimes I see friends at the at commercial drive. All of those things that Eli mentioned give a street its character and human liveliness. In this episode, I want to take a closer look at commercial drive and the community around it. Not because I think any place in Calgary should be exactly like it, that would be ridiculous, but more just to ask, what can we learn from places like this? To find out more, I spoke with Zakir Sulman. He's been a part of the drive for a long time, and a few years ago when he was a philosophy student at UBC, he was involved in something called the Belonging Project. The idea was to explore how people find a sense of belonging in Vancouver, 
a city where many people find it hard to build connections with each other. In the bustle of the lives we live around each other, it's easy to forget our shared humanity. But it's only through the humanity of others that we can hope to create a sense of belonging in Vancouver. What we noticed in the process of speaking to people is that in Vancouver, a city where most of us have had to settle from elsewhere, no one is alone and feeling alone. You just heard a bit of the Belonging Project. That's from 2015, but I caught up with Zakir this week for a conversation. Okay, awesome. Uh, well, thanks, Zakir, for uh, making time here today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for reaching out, Jeremy. Appreciate it. What brought you to the Commercial Drive area in the first place? Hmm. I, I was kind of brought to Commercial Drive. Uh, I mean, I, I was born and raised on the drive. So for me... Um, it's kind of been the place that I've always grown up with and known, and I've moved around a bit, but my family still lives around the drive as well, and I'm around the drive quite a bit. So it really is kind of like a, the whole street is sort of like a living room, right? Kind of like a, a neighborhood living room. And how would you describe that street to somebody who's, who's never been there or you know, hasn't experienced it? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's actually a bit of a difficult one with COVID because, you know, a lot has really kind of shifted as it has in a bunch of places. But if I was just going to describe Commercial Drive, let's say pre-pandemic a little bit, it's it's this kind of, you know, light hill that you kind of walk up from. And as you're walking, you're there are these coffee shops, you're you're walking by all these people who are they look very arty, or maybe they're, you know, older Italian or Portuguese folks. There's uh a lot of punks around and there's this sort of, there's this sort of like, it feels active when you're walking through the whole place, right? There's a lot going on. There's people playing music and coffee everywhere and people just really engaging in a really kind of outward and unique way of living, I think. Not, maybe not in the world, but definitely unique for Vancouver. And when you were growing up there, did you have that sense of this being a unique neighborhood or was it just like, Hey, this is where I, this is where I am. And this is, this is what life is like. You know, <laughs> it's actually the opposite. Cause, um, cause I mean, growing up there, I was just always kind of confused as to why the rest of Vancouver didn't feel like commercial drive. Right. Like on you know, commercial, it's really, it's really common to know people and, you know, to say hi to people, at least know people by face, if not name. Right. So, you know, there's a real sense of like, you can walk down the street and see sort of the same group of people, right. Without it being like creepy people just living about going about their lives. And so going about the rest of Vancouver, it always felt really kind of like the, like a very different thing. The only place that kind of feels like it honestly is kind of like the West end in, in a slightly different way. And as you were growing up, as you were growing up along the drive, mm. what did you what did you like about it? There's a, there's a lot to like. I mean, okay, like maybe the best way to do it is to maybe let me just like give you like an, an average day in my memory, right? So you, I would wake up. I'm like. 15, old enough to have my own money, basically, and get up and roll blearily out of bed into a coffee shop where I know the people there and they're saying hi to me and we're kind of catching up and sit on the kind of patio and sort of watch people go by. There's all these characters around, right? There's the, there's people who all have like, it's kind of like they're doing a bit, but not really. It's, it's there. That's what they do. You know, like there for a while there, there was this guy who had this uh, shtick where he would play uh, bagpipes while wearing these mechanized three foot goat stilts. 
And so he would just be walking around on the way to play in front of the liquor store or whatever. I, he wasn't a very good bagpiper, mind you, but the, the, the stilts were pretty cool. Yeah, they were like, they were like, yeah, mechanized stilts. For me, growing up there, I went to elementary school there. I went to high school there. So I'd be running into friends or whatever else and then go about my day. You know, if I need to go to the library, if I need to go, I'm going to go to the community center and all the way through, it's just pervaded with these kind of connections. And and I think the the most interesting thing is just what those connections are, right? It's like the older Italian guys who, you know, remember me from when I was a kid watching football or the, uh, the kind of group guys that hang out in front of Joe's and drum and you know i've never known their names but we kind of just know each other on site or uh the arty types the guy who's a comedian with somebody who's a musician somebody's a fisherman right like people who are working and doing different jobs around town and that's just normal right normal to kind of bump into people and and normal to really kind of maybe not know everything about everybody's life but just to have a sense that these 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 are people around they're they're community members right Mm mm-hmm yeah, I definitely get that sense. I'm very much an outsider uh, coming to Commercial Drive. My brother and sister-in-law live a couple blocks off Commercial Drive, close to Grandview Park. So whenever we go visit Vancouver, it's always you know, a highlight to visit that, that neighborhood. And one thing that always strikes me is that it feels like a place where anyone can fit in. And I, I don't know, is that, that's my outsider view, but it, but it, but it feels like that kind of place where no matter how weird you are, you know, there's a place for you here. Yeah. It's kind of a collection of oddballs and also, but I mean, you know, it, it depends what we mean by oddball, right? I mean, there's, there's mechanized bagpipe goat guy, but there's also, especially growing up a, a little less so now because they've all gotten quite a bit older, but uh, there'd be all these, you know, Italian folks. I mean, Maybe this is one of the, I was thinking about what to, what to talk about. And one of the things I was thinking about was maybe telling a couple stories about some of the people in the neighborhood. So this might be a good, a good example of that, right? One of the people that I kind of grew up around and then had a really, um, got a lot more involved with over time uh, is an older Italian uh, gentleman by the name of Renzo who used to run a tailor shop on the corner on uh, the drive. And as a kid, it was never a place I went into, but he's just this older guy, you know, flat cap. He's all of five foot three, you know, wrinkly face. Uh, he came over from Italy after the war. One of those started from nothing stories, right? When eventually bought the building on the corner. And, uh, you know, I'd see him around, but I, I was working as a barista for a while there and his son had started off a coffee shop in the place that used to be the tailor shop. And so I got to know him a bit more and it just, he would always be walking around and he, he is always walking around. <laughs> he's still around these days, just not there, I guess. But, you know, he always be walking around and telling stories or, or, or checking in and seeing how things were doing. And he always, he always wanted to see how you were. And he had a little friendly fist bump for you. Uh, he'd sort of learned how to fist bump at some point, and that was his preferred method of <laughs> saying hi. Um, and if you asked him, he, he would tell you all these stories about all the work he'd done in the Italian community, you know, getting, getting a soccer club started or being part of the, making the Italian cultural center a thing in town or just deep, deep roots. And his brothers would always be there. He had three or four brothers that would always just be around and checking in on each other, right? And so to be in and around that coffee shop was to sort of just be in, in their kind of living room and sort of they'd be coming in and out and one of them would be like, oh, I'm here to check something, but really I'm just here to have a coffee and just sit and read the paper or, uh, oh, I'm, you know, I'm here to see Renzo. Was Renzo here? No. Okay. That's fine. I'll come back later. It's just like a very, very kind of normal, dull roar to things. But then he would, but there, I, I can remember one time where 
I was, you know, there were lots, lots of times where, you know, I'd be having like a bad day or in some kind of, you know, in the middle of some kind of highly stressful school situation. And he would come in and like clap me on the shoulder or give you some encouragement. And like, you can do it. He was very, very like, you know, he's that kind of older generation where few words, big meaning, you know what I mean? So, and, and to this day, he still, he still wants, he still walks very slowly and very, very lovely gentleman. That's awesome. Like those, those neighborhood relationships, right? That, that, yeah, that's that, right. That give you a sense of connection. Well, they, they only, they only exist in the neighborhood, right? I mean, they only exist there. They exist because of a shared space and they exist because of uh, shared interests, right? When people's lives are lying on top of each other and layering, you get led into these things, you know, these kind of increasingly intimate things uh, about people's lives, right? Um, and I think that's kind of what it means to live in community to a certain extent is, it's not necessarily voyeuristic, it's, it's intimate, right? It's, it's about, you see people in different states of undress, you know, they're coming to and from something, they're half awake, they're hungover, they're whatever, right? And you know that you are also going to be just as hungover or just as raggedy, you know? And it's, it's just about living together and giving each other a modicum of grace, right? Yeah, it's very, very human, what you're describing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So how did the Belonging Project come about? Because you were a philosophy student at the time, correct? Yeah, yeah, I was, I was, I was doing my undergrad in philosophy at UBC, and um, I, it was really, you know, that, that, that degree and that, the whole Belonging Project journey was me trying to figure out how to ask that why question in a really, in a more of a substantial way and, and try to see if, if talking about why we're here or why something works in this case, community or, or belonging in, in a city, if, if that can be a point of, of connection itself, right? And seeing how there are these commonalities between people. Um, I think the other thing about doing that project was the goal of that project was to try to highlight stories of um, newcomers was the words we used, right? Newcomers or, or people who had come to Vancouver. But I mean, and this is part of growing up in Commercial Drive, Commercial Drive is an immigrant neighborhood, right? I mean, since the 1910s, at least, though, obviously before that, uh, because of settlement, there have been wave upon wave of, of immigration, Italians, Portuguese, Chileans, and those are just kind of the main, the main ones. And now, you know, increasingly in Metro Vancouver, you know, folks from Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever. And then, of course, within Commercial Drive, it's a place where there's always been a really big urban indigenous population. So, you know, that's all kind of there. And so when I was growing up, it, it was never kind of a question of authenticity or ownership. It's like everybody's from somewhere, right? So unless, unless you're an indigenous person, Musqueam, Squamish, or Slavitude from here, right? And so I wanted to kind of explore that and, and try to s- complicate those narratives to try to come at it with more of a intersectional kind of framing and, and, and look at the parts of being here that aren't so simple, right? I mean, we have these sort of immigrant narratives that, that get told about what it means to come here. And, and that narrative goes something like, it's a little stereotype, but it's a very, we are the world, Michael Jackson, Coke commercial kind of thing. Everybody comes here, brown, black faces. They're all really destitute wherever they are. And then they come here and it's life gets better and they figure out how to speak English and they get integrated and end of story. And sort of complicating that and being like, actually, it's an ongoing process. And, and for even for people who quote unquote aren't newcomers, which is, I would, I would say, I would argue, isn't the case. 
there it's still a hard thing to belong in this city, right? So so looking at that and then trying to see what those commonalities, what the threads are that are important for multiple people. Yeah, and that I mean a theme in that project, it seems to me, was the idea of disconnection and the idea of Vancouver as as with, you know, any other given city, being a place where it can be hard to get to know your neighbors. It can be hard to build relationships that give your life meaning. And I'm curious, like when you did that project, did you, yeah, did it shine any light on that in terms of like how to build connection, how to kind of strengthen uh, relationships in neighborhoods? I'll talk a little bit more generally because I don't know about neighborhoods. The, the idea was Vancouver as, as a whole, but I think the, one of the big learnings from that, for me anyway, was that all the people that I did that project with and that I met were, were and are my friends. That the that like a shared project or a shared work was was a foundation for a friendship and lifelong uh, with these people. You know, for some of them, one of the people in those videos uh, passed away a couple of years ago. And uh, I was, you know, there through that process as well because of my connection with that person, right? So I think... I think I think having having a common interest in trying to be open and also common recognition of of you know I, I don't like to sound academic but but just the idea that people have multiple intersecting complicated points of commonality whether it's around identity or experience or whatever else or the pressures on their lives when we talk about what disconnects people in Vancouver it's money and class and the fact that there is a persistent affordability crisis in the city driven by land speculation and policies that drive people out who don't have the money to afford a, uh, what's the going rate for a one bedroom these days, 2,100, 2,200 uh, a month rent, right? Which is a lot of people. And you can see it, in fact, in like in patterns of living in Vancouver, I mean, like increasingly people who, who, who make less money, who are often racialized, who are often marginalized are living out in suburbs and not in Vancouver or living in the South of Vancouver where it's marginally cheaper, but of course, farther away from work. And there's a real danger about this place becoming a commuter city. People bus into work service jobs for all the rich people that live in insert place here, Yaletown, Shaughnessy, the West, West, West Point Gray, right? Whereas the people who live there, if they live there, are living in these however many million dollar things that are just inflated to hell, right? So I, 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 all of that to say that there's, there is a common experience of literally not being able to find a space to fit uh, within this city and that that pressure pervades everything for folks that live here. So when you ask about like things about making community, I mean, recognizing commonalities of which that's one of them. I mean, for some of some folks that we spoke to, they, you know, had really opened up quite bravely about mental health issues that they had and experiences they've had during being very deeply isolated or thinking that they were the only person, uh, insert whatever identity here, the only person or the only, you know, a, a, a minority of some description. And I think really one of the things that I learned from my community is that we all come from different places, but we all have a lot more in common uh, than we think. And these things over top are can be used to separate, but can also be used to bring people together, right? So uh, the example from the neighborhood would be coffee. I mean, Commercial Drive has a famous kind of coffee culture that I think is people talk about it a lot. 
but really, what is that? It's a third space. It's a place for people to meet and to, you know, not have to go home right away. And these coffee shops, uh, not currently, but before COVID, used to be open late. And so you'd have a place to come and hang out that wasn't a bar where it wasn't about booze, where you could come and sit and draw or read or talk to people. And that's something that lots of people enjoy, right? That's not a that's not a particular cultural thing, strictly speaking, right? And it's also affordable. I mean, sure, coffee is like a lot more than it used to be, but at a bare minimum, it's the the other than a library, a coffee shop is a pretty low rent place to come and park yourself and get warm and try to have some, yeah, try to just be a human being, right? Mm-hmm. And and encounter others. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You mentioned uh, complicating the narratives uh, that we have about different people. I, I was struck by something you said in the Vancouver Observer, which is growing up here, it's impossible not to run into people who are wildly different from you. And it's easy to find a split space to belong when everybody's really different. And one of the things I, I find that so interesting because I don't know about in Vancouver, but like in Calgary, one of the tensions in neighborhoods, especially as there's redevelopment pressures and whatnot, is that a lot of neighborhoods become really insular and kind of defined by the sameness. And they, and, and they come to believe that they got to preserve that sameness in order to have their community, community character. Mm-hmm. But what you're describing is very different than that, where people are different. And, and because of that, you find a space to belong. Though I will say to to that to push back and touch that is a, that is also a community character, right? I mean that is that is that is something that defines defines a place, and and I think sometimes when we talk about neighborhoods and we talk about community, I think it's really important to name, as I think I kind of did before, the thing in the room, which is that we live in a world in which there is a certain kind of standard of a neoliberal capitalist um, way of dealing with things, you know, everybody has to make money, everything is always anxious, there are crises all over the place. It's not an environment in which the idea of community, it, let's let's put it like this, the, uh, the and I'm not much of a chemistry person, but uh, if, if, uh, if neoliberal capitalism is water, it's very alkaline, it's very, or basic or whatever, it doesn't grow things very well, shall we say. And one of those things that doesn't grow very well is community, particularly because people become disposable. Now, I just mentioned that because when we treat space as something that's worth speculating on and, and, and creating profit out of, we create this thing where we treat community as instrumental. Community becomes a branding bit in the, the, the neighborhood guide or the, the building guide. It's marketing materials about building building community. Actually, building community is messy. People aren't, aren't clean. People are icky. And that's great. That's good. People have lots of different things that, you know, that they want and that they like. And so the idea of difference being something that people can, when you create a space where it's permissible to be different, and to be divergent and to have your bit, right? That you're doing. People are are have a baseline for dealing with each other, right? They might not always be happy or kind. It's not like a big, the idea of community is not something where you're safe 24 seven, right? Um, in any kind of community. Again, I'll tell a story. Let's put it like this. The guy, the, the, the same coffee shop is the same coffee shop where when I was working in it, there'd be a guy who'd come in, who'd be a career fisherman. He's 50 years old, working his whole life, doing, doing fishing runs out here, Georgia Strait and elsewhere right? Next to him is some art student. 
that's you know out here drawing on their their pad right uh next to them is this guy who's like a weird anarchist his jacket spikes all that kind of stuff spiked hair whatever reading the same newspaper as the fisherman guy they have a they have a they have a very they every now and then they get together and if they're feeling up to talking they'll chat about the paper that they're both reading right i'm there as some kind of you know neighborhood kid but also philosophy undergrad person right and there's a million one little students clustered away at this place right we're all sharing the same space we're all respectful enough of each other and we all have a bit right that we're kind of doing and so i think homogeneity is highly overrated homogeneity presumes there's there's this idea of like homogeneity being somehow safer or cleaner or nicer when the world and in my opinion life is heterogeneous right uh it is it is flourishing and different and and that is something that when you look at a place like commercial drive you see really obviously it's it's kind of in the air and it's it is what makes that place special the other thing i'll mention is they different things draw that out i mean if you go down commercial drive now you'll see a big decal in the middle of the street says and that says every child matters you know when we had those um i mean are they really revelations but we had those those you know stories that came out about all the the kids that were found buried at the residential schools around around canada now right um that's something that just happens because there's a lot of people in the neighborhood that come together to exert a common force, right? When Remembrance Day happens, lots of people are anti-war in the neighborhood. It doesn't mean people don't come out to pay respects to veterans out there, right? Different different way of coming to the same thing. The anti-war people are like, there should never be war. But then the veterans are like, we served in a war. And there's enough commonality there to be like, we can pay respect to this thing, right? Yeah, these conversations are created uh, where you have these different perspectives, right? Yeah, one, one way of talking about that is dialogue, right? I mean, it's again, it's a pretty, that's a pretty amped up word in certain circles these days, but the idea of having a meaningful back and forth conversation. But I think the other thing, and again, to draw attention to what's around this, is just the idea that this is at a loss, right? I mean, the reason we're having this conversation, at least in part, is because commercial drive is abnormal in some way compared to other places, right? And I think it's also worth investigating why that is, you know? Mm. Yeah. And I'm curious about that, like, because you mentioned the forces that are that that threaten a place like this, the housing market, uh, where people are basically priced Mm -hmm. out of their homes and out of out of neighborhood. So so in the case of commercial drive, it it does feel like a place where it's almost like a bastion of resistance against these forces. Is that how have people kind of staved that off? I mean, I mean, I think the reality is that within Vancouver, and uh, I'm, I'm sure it's a similar conversation in, in Calgary, but you'll have to forgive my ignorance a little bit. I'll just talk about this bit. Everything is about housing gear, right? One way or another. And it's, it's sort of a meme at this point. But one of the things that enables commercial drive to exist is that there's co-op and subsidized housing. And is that there, is apart- there are apartment blocks that are dense, that there are places where people who can actually, who need to afford or rather who can only who can only who can afford uh, can't afford like a single family home can't afford like a brand new condo to rent or to buy can live and that's what really enables it if we talk about the things that really enable commercial drive it's waves of immigration it's affordable housing stock and density and it's common space and common ground right you sort of asked about how it's staved off i mean i've been a part of some organizing around these things in the past i think the answer is that it's actually really hard to stave it off 
right? And that, frankly, there, there are a lot of things that threaten commercial drive even now um, in terms of the way that it's, the way that new developments are being built in the area. But I think that also, I, I think that also, again, let's, let's talk about what's around that, right? Like, you know, this idea that commercial drive or something like that has to be protected, like it's an oasis or like it's some kind of special thing. I, I don't think that's the case. I, I, I think that these places survive over time and on a human time scale. The way that I recollect commercial drive as a kid is gone. That doesn't exist, right? It, it, you know, it doesn't exist because when I was a kid, there were four or five coffee bars where, you know, you could go, there'd be a bunch of old Portuguese guys, Italian guys, Brazilian guys, whatever. And they would all be watching whatever game was on or whatever replay and having espresso. Those folks, you know, when I was a kid, they were 60 something, right? I'm 28. How old are they now, right? I mean, they, they, it's just not, they're just not there anymore for, for a variety of reasons, right? Um, to say nothing of the gentrification and the cost of land. I mean, a very Mario who used to run one of the coffee shops in town or rather on, or on the drive, he couldn't afford the rents today if he was still alive, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's just the case that the, the cost of land drives up the quote unquote gentrification of, of the things that are there, right? So anyway, I, th- I guess that's a bit roundabout, but what I'm, what I'm saying is just that I think that it exists in some of those moments that I was talking about earlier, like Remembrance Day, like, like people coming together around, um, sorry, it's difficult to talk about, the, the, the kids in residential schools and, and stating this, this is wrong, whether they're indigenous, whether they're settlers, pretty much everyone can get behind that. And the neighborhood did, right? And came out, showed out orange shirts or whatever else, regalia or whatever else, right? Like physically showed up and gathered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And and also like created, there was a push to make sure that there was like something something painted on the street, right? Um, that literally physically marks that space. It's right by Grandview Park now. So all of that to say that change isn't a bad thing, but I think community only exists with certain preconditions. And when you start to mess with those preconditions, then it gets harder. And that's another thing that's happening in the neighborhood. As single family home costs go up, there's more and more people who are sort of younger families, whiter folks who would be in other parts of the city previously who are moving in. It's not a bad thing that they're there, but it does change what the character of, of the neighborhood or what people are catering to there, right? But at the same time, that, ha- that happens concurrently with there's still enough of a, a common thread for people to come out and represent certain things when they happen, right? So it's, it's not an either or, it's not like a, you know, it's just, just as I wouldn't want some homogenous enclave, neither would I want a community that was in amber, right? At the start of this episode, you heard my nine-year-old nephew, Eli, say what he liked about commercial drive. Let's listen again to the very first thing that he mentioned. The things I like about the drive is because there's always people at the drive and it gives me like a warm feeling kind of. That's a very astute comment. That's true for kids and it's true for adults too. We are drawn to different places because of the people who are there. Their stories become part of our own story and our stories become part of theirs too. In my conversation with Zakir, I asked everything that I wanted to ask. But at the end, he wanted to tell me a couple of stories of people on the drive. People who were fixtures of the community, but are no longer there. We're going to listen in now to those stories. 
he was a father and an artist and he was somebody that I met through the coffee shop that I worked at. Right. And the reason I want to tell the story is I think Corby really exemplifies a lot of the value of the neighborhood. And the fact that he's no longer there, I think is also a little telling uh, in some ways. He would come into the coffee shop with his adorable kid, Ezra, and the most cute, sweet kid in the world. We'd get a coffee and we'd make a little hot chocolate for him and we would just chat, you know, about life and whatever. And then, you know, he'd be talking about some art project he was doing, coming with all this paint all over his clothes. And then one day he was like, yeah, you know, I've been hosting this thing and I think it'd be really great to like help me kind of run this thing. And what he was doing was he was holding this community forum at the, which had initially started as this thing where folks who were drinking at the pub wanted to have these kind of conversations, politics or how's the city going or housing, whatever. And he was sort of formalizing that. And he's like, well, why don't we like give people the floor? And like, why don't we like make it so that you can just get out what you need to get out? And this was 2016, 2017. Um, and, you know, in a time where there was this, polarization, right? All this stuff starting to really happen with Donald Trump and all that. And I saw this and I thought, you know, yeah, I think I want to get involved. I want to do something to try to make a, a, a bit of a difference or try to like hold that space. We started to host these, I helped him host these, uh, these things. It was really his thing, but I helped him host it. And it was all about trying to hold space for people's things. So you didn't have to be eloquent, didn't have to be, in fact, most people were drug uh, show up and have, have, have drinks and, and basically yell about things, right? And they had contradictory, very contradictory opinions. There was a couple of folks that showed up who are, who are pretty right-wing, alt-right, all that kind of stuff in, in a place that's a pretty left-wing neighborhood on the whole, right? But it was about trying to hold that space that people could feel heard, which was the, it wasn't like about trying to convince people. It wasn't about a debate. It was like, here's a place where you can get up and say whatever you need to say, as long as it's not racist, it's not ableist, it's not transphobic, like some, some ground rules, some basic ground rules that we had talked about and tried to put in place. And we facilitated that together for, I think, like the better part of a year. And it was pretty amazing because it was a really clear example of, you know, messiness as things happened in the world, you know, um, 2016 was a, a bit of a mess. So I can't quite remember the specific events, but as like pipeline or protests or Trump getting elected or whatever, you know, they'd come up in the group and, and they would come up and people would voice their opinions on it pro or against and, and get really into passionately why they didn't, why, why they felt that this was wrong or right or people needed to know about this. People would come up and give like community histories about, hey, here's this history about this thing that happened here that I was a part of in the 60s or whatever else. Or some people would just get up and just really like to have people hear them, right? And we ran that for a while. It was a really beautiful thing for various reasons. It, we we kind of couldn't run it after a certain point, or at least I, I couldn't run it after a certain point. And then all of a sudden he passed away randomly because that's how fentanyl overdoses work uh, in Vancouver. And leaving behind a, a partner and a really beautiful kid and his family. Um, and it was a loss, right? It was It was a loss, not just because I knew the person, but it was a loss because... It takes, like I was saying before, energy and, and conditions to create these spaces, right? Whether it's immigration, affordability, housing stock, right? And in this case, what that space took was Corby. Uh, and without Corby, it just didn't feel right. So I still see people from the neighborhood around who I would, you know, I've, I've heard you rant about X, Y, Z. We've all gotten drunk together. And at this point, it's just a polite nod, right? Of like, we, we both know, no, none of us are, tr I'm not trying to, you know, people aren't trying to get that back. There was some conversation about it, but it was like, that really isn't something that can, exi that can exist without this person. And I think that that 
to me is a really indicative thing about what it takes to have community and what it takes to put it together. It's messy, it's difficult. It's also really easy because to a certain extent, all you need is a microphone and a bunch of beer and, uh, and you can have these conversations, right? Microphone, a bunch of beer and a lot of, if not empathy, then at least tolerance for being able to give people this experience, which they don't often really, which is feeling heard. It's something that we just don't have a lot of. And if you have the time, I have one more story I wanted to tell, if that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the other story I wanted to tell was about a guy named Dance. So Dance is a friend of mine, and this one I might actually tear up on. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm telling you stories about a lot of folks who have passed away, but I think that's uh, a bit about the neighborhood, right? You eulogize a bit. So Dance and his brother Frank, but mainly Dance was the person that I knew, was an Indigenous guy who lived on the street um, on commercial. He would carve. Right. Um, and so he had these these pieces of wood that he would uh, uh, carve into sort of indigenous sculptures. Right. Like either little totem poles or hummingbirds. He was really good at hummingbirds, actually. And he would grab an exacto knife and a block of wood. And he, he would say very proudly, like, I could turn this out in like a minute or two minutes. I could chop, cut this, cut this and get it going. He was somebody who had been homeless for a really long time. He was somebody that I met when I was 15 and he was somebody who was just always around and he had the biggest warmest smile he, he would always you know he'd yell at me from across the street the, the way I don't think he ever actually got my name right in all the years that we do each other which is kind of funny he would always yell hey Dan at me um or something like that it sounded like that anyway and he had this big smile this you know he was a very thin guy very slight you know living rough and and he, he, this big smile and he would, you know, how's it going, brother? How are you? He always had that energy for everybody. And that really wasn't just for me. That was for everybody on the neighborhood, the whole neighborhood. So many people had a relationship with this guy and he knew everybody and he would hold this kind of space where, you know, he had a couple spots throughout the years, but over the, over the last little while, uh, he had this spot right by the home, the home hardware spot, a uh, place where he could get knives and other things. And people would go in and get him knives or go in and get him some food or whatever. And he was like an artist an honest to God artist in every way, just as much as anybody in the coffee shop on their pad was a, was an artist or, you know, anything else he, for, for the very small price of like uh, a coffee or some Tim Hortons or whatever the heck, or some exacto braids. He taught me a lot about how to be compassionate and deal with. And I would just sit with him and talk with him when I when I had the jam and the time to do it. And it felt like a very special, intimate relationship to me because I would always keep my eye out for where's dance at? Is he doing okay? Whatever else. He passed away this past summer. Um, and I think what was really amazing to me, I was worried that. COVID had kind of stripped a lot of some of this community stuff away, right, from the drive, because coffee shops are closed early now, you know, a lot of folks are moving, not everybody, like a lot of folks moved out, a lot of businesses closed, but I heard there was a memorial, and in the best way possible, I heard it through like a Facebook post of a poster that somebody had put up on the street about a memorial for uh, Dance and, and Frank, his brother, who also passed away, and we showed up, and I had only talked really to him about the uh, particular place he came from near the end of his life, but 
and I don't know if everybody other if other people had had longer conversations with them about that. But for me, it was really surprising to show up to this memorial, and Grandview Park was like filled, like the whole park was filled, and there were folks from there were uh, Indigenous folks, um, the Friendship Center, and I think other 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 you know places that came out and officiated and had drumming and singing and really brought people in. Uh, you know, he's from a he's from a potlatch culture, but there are other folks there that were from more prairie kind of uh powwow culture. Um and we had both. You know, we had like we had like a somebody brought a copper and we were dancing and and bringing the community in on what to do with this copper and how to treat it respectfully and and there was a big round dance and whatever else but and then that was interspersed with you know the older guy who ran the hardware store reading the eulogy about these guys or people getting up to talk about their experiences with these these brothers um and respect for the traditions silence for the traditions um trying you know an attempt to treat this as respectfully as possible, even though it was something that a lot of people were unfamiliar with, right? I mean, I think a lot of people don't have a lot of exposure to these traditions, let alone like things that approach a funeral or whatever was going on there. Um, and it made me really proud. It made me really proud of home. It made me really proud of the people that were there because they all showed up for something that was important, which was this person who was a member of the community who didn't have a home and who brought a lot clearly to everybody else's life. <laughs> <laughs> on that thing on like on the street and did it in a way that was felt right for for the what dance brought to the community so i think it's things like that right just when i just when i'm like worried about it and count it out there are things that just come back and reassert themselves and it's like oh no it's still it's still there there's there's still a lot there um changed very changed but still a lot there right mm -hmm. that that spark or that connection yeah that desire to that that network of common interests and space and needs and pressures that means people come out and act together right and honestly it's it gives me it, living in that place gives me faith in people because i think seeing that there is a way that people relate and figure things out even if it's not always you know nice Right. Or even if people have fights or blowouts or whatever else on the street and that's very public and all this stuff. Right. There's a way that people relate to each other because they're still living near each other. They're still down. The, they're still down the way one way or another, you know. Well, thanks, uh, Zakir, for your time and insight. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thanks for letting me talk. I, I appreciate that. End of line. Thanks for listening and see you again soon. You've been listening to Sprawlcast. I'm Jeremy Klossus and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl. And you've been listening to my conversation with lifelong Vancouverite, Zakir Sulman. This episode is part of The Sprawl's Mighty Neighborly edition. We're delving into the theme of neighborhood and asking, how do we invigorate the life of the communities in which we live? How do we cultivate neighborliness in Calgary? And how do we keep our communities from becoming closed, homogenous places? You can find more stories along these lines on our website at sprawlcalgary.com. You can also find an edited transcript of this episode on our website. 
We've got more stories and conversations coming on the theme of neighbor, so stay tuned for those. This episode was edited by Mike Todd, and Mike is a musician who has a new EP coming out next week, so be sure to check that out. He plays old-time folk music. Our theme music is by Dan D. Augustino and Kenny Murdoch. Our C-Train narrator is Holly McConnell. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Bye.